This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. Start a 30-day free trial and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash Canada. From Canada land, this is Oppo. <laughs> I am the dark money super PAC they call Justin Ling. And I'm for Super Canada Brexit Light, Jen Gerson. On this week's show, we talk dirty third-party election money with Aaron O'Toole, the Conservatives' foreign affairs critic. And then it's all backstops, checkers deals, and where in the world is Stephen Harper? Well, folks, he's still lurking. Yes, that's right. We're going to be talking all things Brexit. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. Book I'm reading right now, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress by Stephen Pinker. If you have grand apocalyptic visions about the direction of politics, the world, and the environment, please, please check this book out because Pinker does a really excellent job of taking all of the global trends that depress us most and putting them in a very broad, very historical context. And you know what? There's reason to hope. Start a 30-day trial and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash Canada. So, Jen, last week I got on the old horn to Aaron O'Toole. He has been throwing shade at me over a story I wrote in The Globe a few weeks back about a shadowy network of Facebook pages peddling some pretty far-right stuff. Turns out they were run by a conservative party organizer and managed by someone in Russia. Um, Except for the Russia part, right? Because I don't remember that being in your story. <laughs> no, it was in the story. One of the pages was managed by somebody in Russia, according to the Facebook transparency tool. So what does that mean exactly? We don't know. I, the problem is that because it was in the pre-writ period, none of this has to be disclosed and none of it is regulated. This is the fucking problem. Well, this is actually interesting because I mean, I thought I thought that Aaron O'Toole kind of made an interesting point about that story. And that is the fact that somebody who happened to run a campaign, I think in like Manitoba somewhere, was also running Facebook pages in his own time. I mean, to some extent, should that be regulated? That's just an ordinary dude running Facebook pages. 
Well, maybe, but it's also a form of advertising. Whether or not he put money into it or not, spending a dollar no longer is the bar you need to jump over to actually advertise. And if he's an organizer and making a concerted campaign, maybe it should be regulated. Or at the very least, we should have this discussion because we never really had. Anyway, you can listen to me and Aaron go back and forth about this and about who he thinks we ought to be regulating if not this Conservative Party organizer. Hi, Justin. It's Aaron O'Toole calling. Hey, Aaron. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. So a couple weeks ago, I published a story in the Globe and Mail, kind of drawing attention to this network of Facebook groups that were, you know, for free spreading a variety of sort of anti-Trudeau memes and news stories and all this. And we kind of got into a bit of a back and forth on Twitter. You kind of raised the specter that one of the real threats to our democracy or one of the real kind of concerns we should be paying attention to is foreign money coming in, especially when it comes to left-wing groups. And I want to I want to hear you justify that position because I'm curious about it. And it's one I hear a lot. And I, and I want to hear somebody sell me on it. Well, certainly. Yeah. Well, Vivian Krause's work uh, looking at Tide's money coming into the election and particularly its impact on the ground in 29 ridings in the last election is quite well documented. She's appeared before parliamentary committees. And because of disclosure obligations in the United States through the IRS, A lot of this money can be tracked if it comes from a source in the United States, for example. Other foreign sources cannot be tracked because there's no tax reporting obligation. I've also been concerned that in 2015, there was a lot of social media activity, a lot of campaigns also funded by domestic uh, unions, the Public Sector Alliance of Canada, PSAC. We know spent almost $3 million at least fighting against the the Harper government for the 2015 election, including a lot of that money being directed towards veterans. Right. And all that was reported to Elections Canada. And all of that is available online. I mean, certainly you can say that third parties shouldn't be allowed to do that. But there was also third party groups campaigning for the conservative government. There's business associations campaigning against you know, the Liberals and NDP. All that is available online. That is public disclosure. We know who gave them money. We know where they spent the money. So what's the problem there? Well, I don't, you know, when you say business associations, I don't agree with that. You know, you look at chambers of commerce, these sorts of things, they're generally apolitical. There's groups like the Fraser Institute that take market-based approach to public policy solutions, but they don't get involved in, in the political process. My team, when I was Minister of Veterans Affairs, watched how various stories emerged through the run-up to the 2015 campaign and the 2015 campaign itself. And there was a combination of Money, including from Lead Now and other groups, union money and social media campaigns and the inclusion of, of news stories that I would say before we coined the term fake news that drew a lot of questions in a very coordinated way. And tracking the money made me feel that there were millions spent in the 2015 campaign with a lot of that being foreign source money. And Elections Canada made the decision to not do anything about it. In fact, There was a coalition of several groups that called themselves the Canadian Electoral Coalition that combined money from about nine or ten political action sources. And I'm concerned that Elections Canada doesn't really seem interested in getting to the bottom of that. And they have a sort of blackout period for six months ahead of an election. But it also means that for several years, there could be campaigns basically built largely by foreign funds. What foreign, you know, we say foreign funds and it sounds sort of, um, you know, ominous. These foreign groups, I mean, you disagree with me if you want, but these foreign groups are often 
Greenpeace, the Sierra Club, you know, they're left wing environmental groups that are based in the US, but that also work here. Is your concern that that it's any foreign money is bad or it's, it's who's delivering the money or it's what their intended purposes are? I, I know a lot of the rhetoric around this kind of says, you know, they're out to destroy the Canadian oil industry. But is it really that simple? Well, we will never really know what the intention is behind some of the money. So, you know, it's not even clear that some of the money provided to the Tides Foundation and then ultimately fed through into Canadian organizations uh, on the left, where the origin of that original money is. It could be corporate interests. It could be competitive interests. This is why disclosure is has been the, the watchword in Canada in terms of political contributions. And it's why there shouldn't be a blending. And unfortunately, we're seeing this even supported by some court decisions on charitable organizations doing the majority of their work on actually political persuasion. So I think, you know, disclosure, Canadians should be able to know who's funding what, where the messages are coming from. And I really do think with strict rules on individual donations and an outright ban in Canada on corporate and union donations, we shouldn't let corporate and union donations come in from foreign sources because we don't have a campaign or, or a regulatory approach to shut it down. So it, it should be the bright light. I think in the last campaign, we saw how most of the, the coalition of groups were allowed to try and defeat the conservative government. By and large, now there's a lot of attention being covered over a few right of center groups that are critical of the Trudeau government, but they pale in comparison to what I saw happening on a daily basis in 2015. But on a dollar for dollar level, that's not really the case. I mean, groups like Ontario Proud, other groups have more money than, you know, I think we've ever seen spent by left wing environmental groups. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I mean, you know, Ontario Proud plays by the rules. They're doing perfectly legal advertising. They're reporting their donors. They're telling you where their money comes from, generally speaking, you know, as far as they have to. I guess my question for you is that, you know, your party has not always been super receptive to the idea that we do need better rules or reporting. Um, you know, before the last election, you had the chance to put rules on for third parties and you didn't. And, and some of the first organizations out the gate were actually, um, well, you had a competing uh, between left-wing and right-wing groups trying to exploit the kind of loopholes in third-party advertising. This government brings in rules around that. There's huge loopholes in there for foreign funding. There's huge loopholes in there for the pre-writ period um, so that you can do kind of whatever you want right up to June 30th and not have to report anything. Your party's been skeptical of any effort to regulate those. Instead, you've suggested that we need to look at left-wing environmental charities without actually talking about the bigger problem, which is that our, our financing system is very opaque. Well, we did take a few attempts. You may recall that we did have union transparency in terms of where some of their large expenditures went. In Bill C-4, very shortly after he was elected, Justin Trudeau eliminated those transparency provisions, likely as a quid pro quo because the, those organizations helped him win the election. It was one of the first things he did. We did bring in the Fair Elections Act, which I found probably as the parliamentarian that knew it as well as, as the minister, I was astounded by, you know, letters from university professors and all these things who didn't even understand the law, nor did they understand that a lot of the elements in that law had nothing to do with the voter turnout of underrepresented groups. What's interesting is you hear the liberals badmouthing that election reform bill, even though it produced a majority liberal government with record voter turnout. So certainly the, the whole voter suppression narrative was hogwash, as proven by the results in the vote. I just kind of asked you about the broader problems with the election writ large, not specific to left-wing or right-wing groups. I think it's fair to say we need a level, level playing field for everybody. 
and this is, I think, my problem with the conservative position is that it always comes back to unions and environmental groups. Surely we can't be regulating election financing with an eye to only organizations of a certain political stripe. Could you imagine if the liberal government came out tomorrow and said, we're going to adopt a bill that's going to regulate how property developers donate to political parties or spend money on third party election advertising? There would be pandemonium and rightfully so, because you can't single out groups to regulate for political speech. It kind of has to be fair playing across the board. So, you know, I, I guess I, so reflexively push back against kind of the narrative I've heard from the Conservative Party on this, because it doesn't feel like you want a level playing field. Absolutely, I do. In fact, I haven't mentioned environmental groups. You have. I've mentioned uh, uh, union disclosure, which I think is required. You mentioned the Tide but Foundation. Where, where, yeah, where I see, well, the Tide Foundation was funding direct on the ground political organizations. So they funded lead now that does nothing for the environment or monitoring uh, issues uh, of an ecological nature. They were political organizers, sure, yeah. clipboards, door knockers. They were basically an army that you paid, and they didn't have to disclose, much like my volunteer door knocking army in Durham. We have to, if we pay anyone, we have to disclose that, all that sort of thing. So there was huge loopholes that were being exploited, and people can say it was in, uh, you know, under the guise of the environment, but it clearly wasn't. Lead now, in fact, I've been told several liberal candidates, one of whom is now minister, was employed by Lead Now in the run-up to the election. So what I'd like to see is disclosure, a bright light and no foreign funds. Specific hot-button issues like pipelines, like resources, like immigration, a whole range of things are already being exploited by third-party uh, social media campaigns. What we have to make sure is we don't actually allow third money, foreign party money to come into our election, not just influencing social media messaging, but actually organizing on the ground in a way that Canadians can't even do. So I, I think conservatives are in favor of disclosure. And if we're having a level playing field, no corporate, no union donations, there should be no ways of circumventing that. It should be Canadians discussing Canadian issues, Canadian policy, and making decisions unencumbered by foreign influence. You know, I agree with you on that. I, you know, I, I agree that I want to see Tides or Leave Now or Ontario Proud or whoever tell me where their money's coming from, where they're spending it and what they're spending it on. And thanks to, the, you know, give the Trudeau government some credit. The new bill does some of that. There's huge loopholes in it. It only covers a certain amount of time. But, you know, I haven't really heard the Conservative Party say kind of what you're saying right now. I do not hear the Conservative Party saying... Yes, we need to make sure there's disclosure for all parties. All third parties need to report their funding and their spending activities. I haven't really heard that. I mean, you know, maybe is it just sort of a mismatch messaging on your part? No, we talked a lot about it uh, after the last election. In fact, Justin, as you may know, uh, my former colleague, Joan Crockett, who's defeated in the last election, one of the 29 targeted writings, um, has written extensively about this. In fact, there were, I think there was an increase of over 800% in the number of complaints into Elections Canada following the last election compared to 2011, and the majority of those related to the third party, and in some cases, foreign influence. So we have been talking about it over the last few years. My colleague, Senator Linda Frum, has had a bill on it. I think, I'll be honest, I think we, we face such an onslaught of negativity with respect to the Fair Elections Act in the last year and a half of the Harper government that it made us a bit gun-shy on bringing up these issues, even though I was one of the lead communicators. I said, if you peeled back the rhetoric from groups that just didn't like the conservative government, you know, many of the reforms were actually common sense. 
One thing we haven't tackled to the degree I think I covered that bill a lot, Aaron. That bill was not good. It wasn't even like a left wing criticism. Like you had former chief electoral officers saying it was top to bottom a mess of a bill. No, in fact, that's incorrect, Justin. In fact, uh, Mr. Kingsley, before the the hype around it, I think gave it a B minus as a bill. And then when the university professors and all the various suspects lined up, I debated university professors and a lot of people on it. And I found I was absolutely flabbergasted by how poorly people understood the bill. They allowed their frustration with the Harper government to rule the day. And it's been proven by the 2015 election. If there was some voter suppression at the heart, it's pretty crazy. We had record voter turnout and a change in government. So if it was a, if a secret play for us to stay in power, it didn't work very well, Jess. Oh, no, I'm not saying you're trying to rig the election. I'm just saying you didn't write a very good bill. <laughs> I guess the last thing is, evidently in the last election, there was a lot of young voters, maybe young voters, I don't think that your party kind of anticipated, no one actually saw coming. The excitement around Justin Trudeau was one that nobody anticipated considering he was polling distant third before we started the campaign. The amount of mobilization and excitement on that election, not something anyone foresaw coming. But when you say things like, you know, the voter turnout went up this amount and complaints went up this amount and, you know, lead now is organizing people on the ground. Does it not make you sound a little bit conspiratorial? I mean, the reality is, Lead now probably had a very small effect on the national stage. In some writings, they may have got people out to the polls, but I guarantee you the average 20-something voter has never heard of Lead now before. Does it make you sound a little bit paranoid to say that, you know, we have to look at the foreign money going to Lead now because they may have changed the results in this, you know, 20-some-odd writings? Is that not a little bit of conspiracy theory? No, it means you need to do some more research, Justin, which is why I'm glad we're happy to talk about it. Lead now was strategic. The fact that more young people voted so that Christian Freeland won by an extra eight points in her riding, for example, that's not over a I new Democrat, about. to be to be fair, but not over a conservative. Like it's but it's <laughs> not just the voter numbers went up. It's the twenty nine ridings. You look at my friend Lawrence Tote, who lost in Elmwood Transcon. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In, in Winnipeg, he lost by 61 votes. If Lead Now spent tens of thousands of dollars on their door knocking and their and their voter outreach team, they had a direct role in changing the result in that one riding. Agreed, but they're also a Canadian run, Canadian founded, and they do report some of their third party spending to Elections Canada, even under the previous rules. All I'm saying is I want to bright light Sean on these things because I think there was a very strategic approach taken in terms of pre election advertising and social media, but also door-to-door and sort of grassroots political organization, which used to be really the domain of just the political parties themselves. Now, many of these these groups, many funded by foreign interests, were actually going in and saying, how can we actually change the balance of power by defeating certain people in swing ridings? It was very, very strategic. So I don't think it's conspiratorial. If that is happening on a grassroots level, and there were students at University of Manitoba or something mobilizing, that's different than an organization funded by 
American interests going in and saying, we're going to take out these 29 MPs. Well, I don't know that you've ever established that it's funded by American interests. And by that level, I mean, Danny Williams probably had more to do with an ABC campaign than than they did. But you know what? Even if we disagree on the reasons for it, I think we both agree a bright light is a good solution to stop this overall. So, Aaron, thanks for coming on. I'm glad you're covering it. I have to come <laughs> back, too. On July 13th, Wag the Doug co-hosts Allison Smith and Jonathan Goldsby will bring context and perspective to the series of cataclysms that have become the new normal in Canada's largest province. They'll be popping up at the Toronto Outdoor Art Fair to explore and explain the impacts of his policies on the arts and culture of Ontario, and maybe, just maybe, figure out which art he actually likes. I bet it's Dilbert. Canada Land is an official media sponsor of the Toronto Outdoor Art Fair. Visitors can come say hi to both those hosts at booth 267. They will be there all weekend long. If you're in the Toronto area on July 13th, come check out the live taping of Doug Ford vs. the Arts at the Toronto Outdoor Art Fair, Nathan Phillips Square. For more information, please look up Doug Ford vs. the Arts or check out the website torontooutdoor.art. That's dot A-R-T. Do you have friends? We have a bit of a request. I'm hoping you can tell some of your friends about this podcast. You don't have to lock them in a room and make them listen to it, though you can do that if you want to. It would be totally acceptable if you sat them down, chained their leg to a chair, and said, listen, I have something to tell you about a new podcast that I love. That's when you can explain to them, ideally over two or three hours, all of the important things you've learned from this podcast. You could tell them, for example... Oppo is the best thing I've ever heard. It's changed my life and fundamentally rewired my brain. You could even tell them, I have a new profound understanding of the Canadian political landscape, thanks to Justin Ling and to a lesser degree, Jen Gerson. We'd really appreciate that. So go do it right now. So as the UK veers ever closer to a trade apocalypse of its own making thanks to Brexit, Justin, I want to share something with you. What's that, Jen? Yes, Minister. What? Yes, Minister. The British satire from the 80s that my husband and I watched on our very first date. Oh, I do not like this show. (laughs) I happen to think that Yes, Minister was well ahead of its time. If you want to understand how parliamentary government works or doesn't work, there is no better primer than Yes, Minister, which encapsulates the best dark, awful, cynical humor that the Brits have to offer. Yes, Minister even kind of predicted the flaming clusterfuck of Brexit. To wit... The Foreign Office is pro-Europe because it is really anti-Europe. The civil service was united in its desire to make sure that the common market didn't work. That's why we went into it. What are you talking about? (laughs) Minister, Britain has had the same foreign policy objective for at least the last 500 years. To create a disunited Europe. In that cause... We have fought with the Dutch against the Spanish, with the Germans against the French, with the French and Italians against the Germans, and with the French against the Germans and Italians. Divide and rule, you see. Why should we change now, when it's worked so well? (laughs) Ancient history, surely. Yes, and current policy. We had to break the whole thing up, so we had to get inside. We tried to break it up from the outside, but that wouldn't work. Now that we're inside, we can make a complete pig's breakfast of the whole thing. (laughs) Set the Germans against the French, the French against the Italians, the Italians against the Dutch. The Foreign Office is terribly pleased. It's just like old times. Yeah, okay, whatever. I'm more of a Thick of It fan. But if you need a refresher on Brexit, here's what I'm going to give you in in 60 seconds. 
here's what you need to know about Brexit if you've forgotten or you've deliberately tried to avoid all of this nonsense. So, you ready, Jen? Oh, let's go. Hit me. In 2015, Tory Prime Minister David Cameron ran for re-election, promising to give UK citizens a vote on their membership in the EU. Then he won. Then he had to do it. Then he campaigned to keep the UK in the EU. But the UK Independence Party leader Nigel Farage drove around the country in a fucking bus, promising to take 350 million euros the UK supposedly gives to the EU in a week and spend it on healthcare. Guess who won? So Cameron resigns and the Tories pick Remain voting Theresa May to do Brexit. Turns out it's really fucking hard, so she calls an election and loses seats to Labour and has to make a deal with the right-wing unionists in North Northern Ireland. Then she has to go back to dealing Brexit. And she gets a deal. It would avoid a hard border in Ireland, keep the customs union, and avoid deporting people. So obviously, that wouldn't fly, and it gets defeated, and defeated again. Basically, every option gets defeated. So May resigns, and now 100,000 odd Tory party members are choosing between Brexit fetishist Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt, who also loves Brexit, just not as much. And it's all fucked. Meanwhile, news came out this past weekend that Jeremy Hunt had tapped Stephen Harper, still lurking, and Ronna Abrose to lead his Brexit team. In the unlikely case that Hunt becomes Prime Minister instead of Boris Johnson, and it's going to be Boris Johnson. Yeah, it's going to be Boris. Only to have Harper come out to say he's not signing up for any camp, so Harper could work for Boris Johnson. Oh, and <laughs> we all so may be sitting great. I'm so happy that we don't have to actually live through this. It's wonderful. In a way, we're going to. We're going to have to go negotiate a whole new deal with the UK and, and meanwhile try to you know console the EU as they you know cry themselves to sleep. And you know we may be sitting here in Canada thinking we're immune, covering our eyes like we're watching a petting zoo on fire. But the Conservative Party of Canada is cheering this on. Andrew Scheer not only endorsed Brexit, but he still thinks it's a good fucking idea. What so? the fuck? What you the know fuck? what? There are different positions that one can legitimately hold on Brexit. Most of them are wrong. You know, okay, I, I'm well, sorry. That's, that's your opinion. You're allowed and to I'm have right. your opinion. Look, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And obviously, you know more about Brexit than I do, because I mean, I just listened to that entire tirade and my eyes glazed over. But <laughs> the idea that like conservatives are opposed to a centralized remote government based in Brussels isn't really surprising, nor should it be. Now, I don't think that anybody is or should be shocked that the UK is in for a couple of tumultuous months, if not years. The political chaos has been preceded by what is expected to be absolute trade chaos as the UK veers towards what's being called a no-deal Brexit, which means they're going to with- probably withdraw from the EU without actually having any like replacement trade deals in place. And that's probably going to be a bit of a mess. I mean, People in the UK are looking at, for example, higher fruit and vegetable prices. They're not going to have um, the ability to travel to Europe anywhere nearly as easily as they did. They're going to be needing visas and passports. You know, what's going to happen to the EU citizens who are living in the UK today? What's going to happen to the British citizens who are who are living in the EU now? I mean, we don't really know. So it's going to be a giant goddamn mess for at least a few years, and it's almost certainly going to hurt the UK's thriving financial sector. So like there are large global implications for this entire mess. That being said, a lot of these problems and a lot of these issues and these concerns are fundamentally short or medium term issues or concerns. If you're on the leave side and you remain on the leave side, and let's be honest, most of the people who voted for leave haven't changed their minds on this one. If you were to hold a second referendum, there are pretty good odds the referendum would come out exactly the same way. So if you're on the leave side, you're not looking at like, okay, the discomfort of the next five years, you're looking for like, where does Britain want to be? And where does the UK want to be as a nation over the next 100? 
right? And if you're looking at a 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 year time span, these would be my concerns. Is the EU itself even sustainable in this long term way? And B, is Britain going to be better off in a generation or two generations as an independent nation as opposed to one that is essentially increasingly ruled by a bureaucratic elite based in Brussels? Okay, so you know that was that was a pretty good defense of exactly what you know a lot of moderate Brexiteers would argue, and maybe even what Andrew Scheer believes. But that's fucking insane. This idea of a centralized government in Brussels has always been infuriating. I mean, the reality is we, as uh, you know, Western uh, G20 nations, have done a fair bit of you know offshoring certain decision-making processes to ensure a stable world trade you know environment. There is a, a hefty amount of centralization in the World Bank headquarters. There's a hefty amount of world, centralization in the IMF headquarters, in the World Trade Organization. In when it comes to North America, we've surrendered some autonomy and sovereignty to the NAFTA courts, to the NAFTA tribunals. Yep, that's this right. happens. This is what happens when you agree to a trade block. Okay, but slight rebuttal because the EU goes beyond a mere trade block. And in fact, Britain hasn't just surrendered certain completely reasonable deals around trade regulations to Brussels. They've surrendered, for example, their immigration policy. I think that that's a much bigger issue for for a lot of people who are. But they've on not the surrendered their, their their immigration policy. They still ultimately get to set their own immigration targets uh, and resettlement quotas. Uh, they do have to allow for the free flow of people within Europe. But that that's has right. been unquestionably a good thing. Like there has been no analysis that that has actually been detrimental detrimental to the UK state. In fact, the UK is consistently lacking in, you know, low uh, education or, you know, uh, low wage workers that it has, uh, you know, accepted workers from Poland and elsewhere to fill that gap. It has okay, unquestionably the, driven the UK in, economy. In especially more depressed areas in the UK and people who are struggling with the cost of living in places like London don't see it that way. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're, they're, they, they see themselves increasingly competing with cheaper and cheaper labor from places like Poland in order to try and get by. I mean, by and large, people have blamed immigration for the decline of industries that have just simply left the UK. Brexit oh, won't solve that. And, and you see a lot of that sort of xenophobic stuff sort of underpinning exactly the same xenophobic arguments in, in the United States. I mean, you know, the Mexicans came and took all of our factory jobs. Well, That's you know right. what? The Mexican factories were also more efficient and blah, 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 blah. Exactly. So like, granted, but like, there is an element at which immigration and cheap labor and all of this sort of stuff is at play as well. So like, let's not pretend that it's not a factor here and why people are making these decisions. That's fine. But, you know, I, I don't think that conversation is honest. It really is the sort of thing where, you know, we've surrendered our sovereignty on immigration. I mean, no, you really haven't. You still have a tremendous amount of local authority, you know, to decide immigration quotas, to decide who you're choosing to resettle in this country. And it comes to other things along this on the same route. I mean, you hear Brexiteers complain about uh, like flame retardant regulations. They, they complain about, you know, the number of times bananas have to get checked. But all of these things have been net positives, actually increasing efficiencies and, and promoting promoting food safety, promoting fire safety, you know, it has almost unquestionably been a good thing. The overall cost the UK is surrendering to the EU in order to manage a lot of these processes has ultimately been worth it, I think you can convincingly argue. Does that mean everything's perfect? No, obviously not, but nothing is ever fucking perfect in a democracy. And so I don't think it's honest to blame the EU for every ill that has ever befallen the UK, because the reality is the EU has been a net positive for the UK, and I don't think you actually can show me data or or facts or figures that will disprove that because I, I don't think they exist. Well, in the same way that globalization has been a net positive for the exactly. globe, but that doesn't mean that individual countries and regions haven't suffered as a result of it. 
That's fair, but countries writ large do benefit. I mean, wealth has increased. Yes, but nobody's disputing that. Everybody acknowledges that, for example, the wealth of the United States has been good for the United States. The United States is the most wealthy country on the, on the planet. However, yeah. that doesn't mean that like that wealth is translated equally in Michigan Agreed. and and Florida, or as it has in Texas or California. And that's fundamentally that the, the have have not dichotomy, which globalization and these types of centralizations continue to exacerbate is at the heart of sort of the rise of some of these populist movements. Would you rip up NAFTA to preserve the Rust Belt? Uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> so <laughs> no, there we go. I wouldn't I wouldn't remotely do that. But then I'm a Canadian based in Alberta. I have no I have no self-interest in doing that in the least. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to convince a lot of Brexiteers. If you're really fond of Brexit, if you love the emotional idea of of independence, quote unquote, independence, great. Good for you. But again, it is insane to me that Andrew Scheer has endorsed this, especially given the fact that, you know, Canada has such, um, you know, longstanding ties to Ireland uh, because a no deal Brexit could literally mean a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, a complete shredding of the Good Friday Agreement, which could actually lead to, uh, I'm not going to suggest it's going to restart the troubles, but could seriously lead to inflamed tensions along the Irish border. We've already seen some of those inflamed tensions. Absolutely. It has certainly has the potential to be very, 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 very bad. No one disputes this. And I think that you are going to find a lot of conservatives in Canada with egg on their face if, in fact, you do see like mass food riots and the troubles come back. There's no question about that. The thing I would also I would kind of want to bring it back to Canada here, and that is what the hell is anybody expecting, you know, Stephen Harper and Ronna Abrose <laughs> to do in this case? And I think what people maybe not be aware of here is that when Theresa May was trying to negotiate the Brexit deal, there were kind of two options on the table that they were looking at, the checkers deal and what's something called the super Canada deal. So like, yeah. we actually came into this. So the idea was that the trade deal that Canada negotiated under Harper uh, with the EU called CETA, that they would basically just sort of expand CETA essentially so that the UK would trade with the EU in much the same way that Canada is now going to have a trade agreement with the EU, which is really interesting. And it actually explains why some of these conservative candidates want to bring Harper back because Harper (laughs) could help. I think the idea being Harper could help um, create a version of the super Canada deal. It's funny, I am unbelievably frustrated with Andrew Scheer for not only for wading into this, but for so wrongheadedly endorsing such a fucking stupid idea. But I'm actually really happy Stephen Harper and Ron Ambrose have, have waded into this. From my read of it, they've been both, you know, very even handed. They're not endorsing Brexit. They're not endorsing a candidate. They're making their services available to ideally get a deal and to make sure that deal is as good as possible for everybody. So honestly, kudos to the both of them. I actually think this whole process is probably much better for their involvement. Yes, I would totally agree with that. I, I think if, if we are going to have a conservative prime minister and it's going to be Boris Johnson, oh. I kind of want Stephen Harper in the room and Carney oh, and Ron Aubrey yeah. and Rona Ambrose. And like, like, remember when everybody thought that Stephen Harper was the worst anybody could do? Like, come on, guys. No, it turned oh, out it's Boris Johnson. <laughs> there's so much, so much worse. <laughs> That's it for Oppo. We'll be back again in two weeks. Remember, tell your friends about us and find us on iTunes to give us a rating. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast to let us know what you think. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is fuck. As in, oh my god, are you really going to fucking go ahead with a no-deal Brexit? Holy shit. Thank you.